Hello and welcome to the Occupied Thoughts podcast, a project brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Sarah Ann Minkin, Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. What you are about to hear is a webinar we recorded on November 5th, 2021, entitled The Terrorism Smear, Israel's Move to Shut Down Palestinian Human Rights Work. Thank you for tuning in. Hello and welcome. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Welcome to today's conversation, the terrorism smear, Israel's move to shut down Palestinian human rights work. Um, some quick housekeeping before we get started. As always, uh, the format for this webinar will be a discussion between the panelists and myself. We will end promptly at 12.45 p.m. Um, we are being recorded and live streamed on Facebook. So welcome to everyone both on Zoom and on Facebook. Uh, I have my own questions. In addition to my questions, I welcome questions from our audience. Um, if you're on Zoom, you can put those questions into the question Q&A box. Don't put them in the chat box. I won't see them. <laughs> and I'll keep an eye on that throughout the discussion, the, the question box. As far as the chat box, you should be keeping an eye on the chat box because my colleagues behind the scenes of the foundation will be putting useful links and information into that box throughout the discussion. Um, but again, don't send me anything on that. I won't see it. And last, we have enabled closed captioning for people who prefer or need to read the discussion and follow it that way. So to get started, just very brief background. Um, as probably everyone here knows, in October, the Israeli government declared six Palestinian human rights groups to be terror organizations, a designation that criminalizes their work under Israeli law and enables Israel to seize um, assets, arrest staff, prohibit funding, um, punish public expressions of support and solidarity, etc. With this terror designation, the Israeli government has in effect escalated what has been a long time effort to crush Palestinian organizations that document Israeli ongoing violations of Palestinian human rights and who seek to hold Israel accountable. So that's what we're gonna be talking about today. And I am very happy and we are deeply honored to have with us leading human rights and civil rights activists. Their full bios are available on our website. I'll introduce them very briefly here. I wanna start with Jamil Takwar. Jamil is the director of the American Civil Liberty Union's Human Rights Program. In this role, Jamil advocates before the US government on human rights issues with a particular focus on the domestic imp implementation of US human rights obligations. Before joining this, the ACLU in 2004, he worked at Human Rights Watch, where he conducted research, advocated and published reports on issues of torture and detention in Egypt, Morocco, Israel, and the occupied Palestinian territory. And previous to that, um, he was a senior attorney at Adala, where he filed and argued human rights cases before Israeli courts and advocated before international forums. That's Jamil. So second, um, okay, so for reasons beyond his control, Adala's Hassan Jabarin, who was scheduled to take part in this webinar, is unable to participate. And we are very sorry and hope to have him another time soon. In his place, we are very pleased to welcome one of his Adala colleagues, Rabia Agbariye. Um, Rabia is a human rights lawyer with Adala Legal Center in Haifa and a doctoral candidate at Harvard Law School. He has written extensively about Palestinians and Israeli law and argued several Supreme Court cases for Palestinian rights, including cases involving the 2016 anti-terror legislation, which is really at the heart of what we're talking about today. And finally, we are very honored to have with us Dima Khalidi. 
Dima is the founder and director of Palestine Legal and Cooperating Council with the Center for Constitutional Rights, CCR. Dima oversees Palestine Legal's vast array of legal and advocacy work to protect people speaking out for Palestinian rights from attacks on their civil and constitutional rights. And again, if you want more information, bios, links, details, their work, check our website. So diving right in, and we have a lot to cover. Um, Rabi, I want to start with you. Speaking in your capacity as an authority on Israeli Israel's legal system, can you first talk a bit about how these designations that took place a week ago today, how are they possible under Israel's 2016 anti-terror law? And what do these designations mean under Israeli law um, for the six NGOs in concrete terms? Thank you, Laura. Thank you, everybody, for having this important um, event. I will delve right directly into your question, Laura, and say that, well, if we want to understand these designation, obviously there is two important contexts. Uh, as a matter of law, the 2016 anti-terror law that Israeli Knesset enacted is the legal framework that is at play here. And this legal framework is problematic in itself. It was enacted in 2016 as an aim to replace um, legislation or um, uh, legal corpus that was uh, still enforced from the British uh, colonial period, from the British mandate, which is actually part of it are still used uh, both in Israel proper and in uh, the West Bank, even after the enactment of this anti-terror law. But what happened with the enactment of this law is that it gave extensive powers uh, to the executive branch, particularly, and to the prosecution and to the courts um, to, to smear um, um, many legitimate um, claims under the pretext of anti-terrorism. So the law broadened the authority of Israel to consider certain acts or certain um, uh, expressions as terror uh, related. So this is the general framework. Uh, we have yet, we, we still have cases just coming up in the last couple of years that are using this law and we are still challenging uh, the use of this authority in particular against political leaders, Palestinian citizens who are political leaders who are charged according to this legislation um, with uh, with charges of uh, incitement in particular, which is an overbroad interpretation of what is uh, previously could have, even according to the Supreme Court of Israel, been a legitimate speech. So this is the general uh, framework. It is obviously a dangerous framework. It is obviously uh, an unprecedented framework that is cracking down on uh, dissent, on, uh, on political views, and on Palestinians in particular. Now, within this context, the designation of the six Palestinian organizations came in accordance with this law and the provisions it provides to, to, to consider uh, these um, 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 civil society organizations as quote-unquote terror uh, organizations. Uh, the law works territorially, right? So it is legislated by the Knesset the Israeli parliament. So ostensibly it does not apply directly to the West Bank where these organizations are, um, uh, are, uh, uh, are founded and operate their offices. But, and there's a huge but, um, although the law 
applies territorially, it has extraterritorial consequences and it has it, pertain, it still pertains and has legal force um, um, to extraterritorial entities such as uh, the, the six organizations we're talking about, but also beyond that. And what, what I mean, so just to make it clear, the military who is the, the authority, the legal authority in the West Bank has not issued an order that designates these organizations as terrorist organizations. So supposedly this order uh, or this designation applies only to Israeli law within the green line, within Israel proper, but this can have huge ramifications for considering um, um, these organizations as terror organizations according to Israeli law. And I will give examples. Um, so first of all, we know that there is a mishmash between the legal situation uh, in Israel and uh, according to Israeli law and uh, to the law pertaining to the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem, right? So there is different legal framework that should apply, but there is a huge overlap and the actors are still the same actors that can, can uh, employ their discretion um, based on the same consideration. And this has happened before. Now, the designation of the six organizations as terror organizations, according to Israeli law, can have consequences of on movement of members of these organizations, namely, if anybody wants to cross the borders or uh, go to Jordan, for example, or enter, uh, for some reason, um, Jerusalem, this can supposedly the law becomes territorially, the jurisdiction of the law applies. Uh, but beyond that, this can become a pretext to um, arrest and detain people who are involved in these organizations under the pretext of like uh, administrative detention. Beyond that, it still has immediate effect on uh, citizens of, uh, of uh, Israel itself, including obviously Palestinian citizens who might be held uh, or charged in pursuance of the glorification or incitement um, provisions, which basically can be sometimes a Facebook post or an online post. And we have had cases as such in, uh, in Adala um, with, uh, for example, uh, Raja Ikhbari, who's a political leader of the um, Abna al-Balad movement, uh, and uh, Kamal Khatib as well, uh, who are uh, all prominent political uh, leaders of the Palestinian citizens in Israel. Um, so we can see that this also may have consequences that are directly about speech, uh, about movement, about administrative detention. But beyond that, obviously, the main point of this designation is to stop the funds, right? So, the, and this is articulated first, uh, when I saw this designation, I saw that Diallas Shemas tweet about this and I thought this was brilliant articulation. Uh, the, 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 the idea of using anti-terror legislation is to stop um, uh, the, after years and years, and we can talk more about that later, but after years of trying to target civil society and these particular organizations, um, we are seeing that Israel is resorting to its national legislation and using this 2016 extensive measures uh, to, to basically try to, um, to cut foreign funds for these organizations because banks simply won't take the risks anymore. Thanks. And we're going to delve into a lot of things you mentioned. For folks who didn't see news this morning, um, that last piece that Obia is talking about, we've already seen this now starting. There's a a Finnish um, NGO, which announced they were cutting off funding to one of the groups. Um, in the statement they made, they made clear that they have found no evidence 
um, that any money is being misused or going to terror and they like the organization, but that because of the banking implications, they are forced to cease the funding or it will end up hurting them in their work worldwide, which is, I would argue, exactly what the playbook is here. Um, I want to take this in a slightly different direction. Jamil, can you, let's go, you tweeted a while ago about the, the fact that the government, Israeli government escalation against both the Palestinian and Israeli human rights groups really started um, with the Goldstone Report in 2009. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm not sure if everyone here is old enough to remember the Goldstone Report. I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, can you give us a little background on that? And can you give us background on the punitive and restrictive measures that the Israeli government has taken against civil society um, in the wake of that report and in the wake of their outrage at the role of human rights groups in that report? And, and you know, to what extent, if you're comfortable, do you, can you talk about how you see the timing of this effort to label the six NGOs as terrorist groups, you know, looking at the gold, the Goldstone report as a precedent, I mean, it has been suggested that the timing is not unlinked um, to the war crimes um, investigation before the ICC. If you feel if you'll feel comfortable weighing in on that too. Absolutely. Uh, first, thank you very much for organizing this webinar. I'm very pleased and honored to be with uh, my colleagues and friends, uh, Rabia and, and Dima. Uh, I, I wanted to uh, first uh, maybe uh, continue where Rabia left off and to say that um, under Israeli military law, um, the, virtually all Palestinian uh, political parties and movements are considered illegal. And, uh, and has uh, even despite the, the so-called you know, peace agreements and peace uh, processes, this, there hasn't been change in terms of uh, the change of the classification of Palestinian groups that are uh, political groups active in Palestine. So there, there's, there's always been uh, restrictions on political activism, and especially uh, and in including uh, on very basic rights like uh, freedom of assembly, uh, assembly rights in, in the West Bank. Under, under Israeli military law is virtually non-existent. It's illegal. It doesn't, you cannot do that uh, without violating uh, military law. In addition to that, Israel resorted to the illegal frame of association, uh, turning and describing and labeling associations that are linked to political parties, not only in the West Bank and Gaza, but it, we have a history of Israel's doing so even inside Israel. Uh, there's a long history that we don't have the time to go into, for example, of banning El Ard movement and associations linked to El Ard as illegal associations using some of the mandate colonial era laws that allowed the Minister of Interior and subsequently other ministries to put place um, restrictions and banning altogether these organizations. So there's a long history of banning organizations, whether they are in the political realm or even active in the cultural realm, in the, in the civil society realm, more um, so the frame of anti-terrorism frame is obviously relatively new uh, and particularly comes from the, and it escalated after 9-11 as, as, as was mentioned earlier. Uh, and I think it's a much uh, more um, comfortable frame for the Israeli government uh, to use in order to crack down on dissent more broadly and to derail the resources, derail, drain and, and derail the efforts and resources of uh, any Palestinian legitimate, legitimate human rights organizations, but also more broadly. 
So when when you look back and when this escalation, I mean, it's always been attacks and restrictions on all sorts of restrictions, uh, restrictions of movement, uh, ability to, to really form any legitimate uh, activism against Israeli occupation. We, uh, but the, the escalation, in my view, really, you can trace it back to the Goldstone Report. And the Goldstone Report that is named after um, the former justice of South African uh, Constitutional Court who headed a United Nations fact-finding mission that looked into uh, poss possible war crimes were committed in the context of, uh, of the war in Gaza in 2008, 2009, Operation Cast Lead, uh, which resulted in over 1,300 uh, Palestinians um, killed uh, 13 Palestinian civilians uh, on, the, on the Israeli side. And that was the first time that the UN Human Rights Council mandates a commission that has not only directing, by the way, the mandate to investigate war crimes by Israel, but also by uh, Palestinian uh, armed groups uh, that were participating in, in, the, in, the milit uh, in, the, in that particular uh, military operations or responding to Israeli military operations. And that was the first time that you have a very serious report, a very serious investigation. It's not a full-fledged investigation because they, they didn't have even access to the Gaza Strip um, and they didn't have ability to get access and there was no cooperation from the Israeli side. But there was a first uh, serious effort um, that where Israeli violations of international humanitarian law were documented, including case studies, including specific cases where there was uh, a clear violations of the laws of armed conflict and with clear recommendations and findings that were brought to the Human Rights Council and called for more accountability and referring the case to uh, international criminal uh, uh, responsibility, particularly as there was more and more cases and more um, awareness around the International Criminal Court. Of course, by that time, Palestine with Palestinian Authority was not uh, part of the ICC. So it was, um, was almost very, very difficult to bring, unless there is a referral from the Security Council to bring a case like this to the, the ICC. And yet uh, it was clear what the writing was on the wall. But that is, it was clear that the, the Israeli government for the first time, there was a very credible commission of inquiry Obviously, Justice Goldstone, after uh, pressure on him personally, retracted some of the findings, but the commission's report stands uh, and its conclusion, I think, stand without, without doubt uh, because the other members did not um, uh, you know, uh, walk back from the recommendations. But from that point, uh, you see that both the Israeli government as well as uh, NGOs, both Israeli NGOs and international organizations, as well as U.S.-based organizations, launching attacks against uh, not only the Goldstone Report as such and undermining its credibility and the importance of its finding, but launching a smear attack against the organizations that were participated and provided testimonies to the Goldstone Report. Um, at least two of the organizations that were designated as terrorists participated in that, uh, Damir and Al-Hab. And uh, you would see that NGO Monitor, their first press release in, on the Goldstone Report from September 2009, specifically targeted those NGOs as the political NGOs. 
So there's a clear identification of these, at least two of the six at that time, that these are targeted and they're funded by the Swedish government and other uh, European government. Uh, from there, uh, th there were more laws in Israel, as well as attacks on both Palestinian and Israeli NGOs, limiting, for example, lo their lobbying uh, on violations of Israel's violation of human rights with passage of 2016 NGO law that would put restrictions on that. Uh, passage of uh, uh, other restrictions on a movement that was placed on some of the activists. Shawan Jabarin, for example, was was banned from traveling abroad in 2008. Um, and so the two things that happen is that there's a clear indication that as Israel launched other uh, military campaigns on Gaza, uh, again in 2012 uh, and again in 2014, uh, and most recently in May of this year, uh, there was a growing effort and more and more serious uh, attempts to hold Israel accountable at the international level. We have uh, the UN Human Rights Council uh, establishing a, a new database uh, on illegal settlements that was a result of many uh, advocacy organizations, including Al-Haq, uh, particularly Al-Haq because they have a special program on business and human rights. And you have, on the other hand, advocacy in the, in the context of the ICC. Uh, and, so the, is, and so Israel and its supporters started to use uh, all kinds of ways. Uh, and I saw that the the, the security and charity uh, report was posted in the chat in order to undermine those efforts uh, and to smear and to brand uh, both organizations like Al-Haq, Al-Damir and DCI Palestine and others as uh, linked to terrorism. So to diminish their credibility, to defund them, to accuse them of baseless claims that they were tied to terrorism. At the same time, uh, taking the effort of blocking any attempts to, uh, to engage in boycotts, uh, particularly with the passage again in 2011 in Israel, uh, the anti-boycott law that placed civil uh, lawsuits liability for people who would, be, would call to boycott and that boycott would materialize in some way, um, and, and as well as other attempts uh, at, uh, for example, banning Israeli human rights organizations from speaking to uh, uh, students, high school students and schools about human rights violations in the occupied territory. So there was a whole host of ways that the, the Israeli government, both by legislation, by measures, uh, creating a whole ministry uh, of uh, strategic affairs that was in 2015, that was focused on a coordinating effort uh, to, to fight what they call delegitimization of Israel uh, boycotting Israel and uh, attacking uh, and basically holding it accountable before international bodies. So from there, it is clear that we get to the point where the ICC has taken up uh, the investigation in the, not only in the context of Gaza, but also more broadly in the context of illegal settlements and potentially uh, uh, the crime of apartheid and persecution. So you have international organizations like Human Rights Watch uh, coming up with a serious uh, report uh, documenting the the, 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 the the fact that Israel has been engaged in committing the crime um, uh, the, uh, human, uh, the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution and uh, while at the same time the ICC investigation is moving forward they're clearing hurdles uh, and uh, extensive uh, pressure from from many countries that are allied of the US or Israel, to, 
to, uh, uh, to stop and to block that investigation from moving forward. Three of the six organizations participated actively in providing materials and evidence and information to the chief prosecutor of the ICC. So there is a direct link between their effort, not only in monitoring and documenting human rights locally, something that the, the Israeli government would not be uh, making uh, that much of a, an issue with, because as long as you know they're not crossing the line, as we heard from, from the leaders of the, uh, of the organization last week, once you cross that line, the line is when you place personal liability, criminal liability against Israeli officials Israeli military leaders for commission of war crimes, crimes against humanity, or making an effective contribution to the effort to boycott Israel uh, and to isolate Israel uh, and sanction Israel, something that DCI Palestine has, has worked extensively in the last few years by bringing uh, for the first time or helping to bring, uh, working with members of Congress and informing them and educating them about the need to have condi conditionality. So all of these together uh, made it made it, I think, uh, opportune moment for the Israeli government to say, we we could have uh, a case against those six that would send a multiple messages, me message against holding Israel accountable in international fora, messages to uh, the funders, messages to uh, politicians and policymakers around, particularly in the United States and in Europe, and also messages to Israeli civil society organizations including international human rights organizations that have uh, joined the effort to hold Israel accountable. Because before the Human Rights Watch report uh, around the issue of apartheid, it was really limited to local national Palestinian human rights organizations. Now, uh, it, it, it appears that this is becoming a very credible um, uh, uh, and imminent danger for Israeli officials and for Israel to be, for, for the first time, uh, facing consequences. So I think that is where why we see this case uh, culminating and, and becoming a, a point where uh, the, if it's allowed, if it's, this move is allowed to go without consequences, it will be uh, really quite difficult to resist or to push back against anything that Israel would do uh, in the context of, of the, if it's um, military occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Thank you. Thank you. And we're going to dig into a lot of the things that you raised. Um, we're not putting any, any links in the chat, I don't think, to NGO Monitor. But for folks who who hear about this and think this, this designation came out of nowhere, it's useful to go back to really the Goldstone period on the NGO Monitor website. Because what I think is quite instructive is this: the attack we saw last week is clearly aligned with the attacks we started seeing back in 2006. It's just an escalation of tactics. In 2006, the attack wasn't saying, oh, these are terrorist groups. It was saying they're delegitimizers or you know, in subsequent years saying, oh, they BDS, that means they're anti-Semitic. The attacks have been the same over and over and over. It's just the framing, each time a framing doesn't work, it's like they adopt a new one. And the terrorist framing seems to be the one that they believe will be the knockout punch. Um, speaking of knockout punch, so Dima, I want to turn to you, and I want you to talk about this from a U.S. and international legal perspective. Um, you're welcome to address anything that's been talked about already, but also specifically, I've had people ask me, explain to me legally how, how this works, that Israel is alleging terrorist ties, ostensibly, you know, organizations aren't people, they're ostensibly alleging ties 
or actions that support terror from people within organizations, and yet they're deeming entire organizations to be terrorist organizations. It's, I said to someone, it's like if during the Trump administration, his, his Justice Department said, oh, we found four people at Planned Parenthood who are somehow involved in the mafia, so we're going to shut down all of Planned Parenthood as an illegal criminal enterprise. How does that hold up under U.S. law, under international law, under any concept of normal you know, due process, jurisprudence, rule of law? Um, well, uh, thanks, thanks uh, again, Laura, and, um, and good to be with you all. Um, you know, it's, I think we have to connect what Israel is doing with uh, the, the broader post, also pre, but, but, but especially post 9-11, uh, war on terror, the, the entire terrorism regime, counterterrorism regime that has been constructed. Um, and, you know, if you look at how, uh, what's happening in the U.S., what has happened in the U.S. over the last couple of decades, you know, actually this practice of shutting down entire organizations is very familiar. Uh, you know, just look at uh, the Holy Land Foundation case where, uh, you know, before heads of that organization were criminally prosecuted, the organization itself was designated by the U.S. government. This was a massive humanitarian organization. Um, and along with a couple of others, it was completely shut down. Its finances were shut down, et cetera, after 9-11, of course. Um, and now those who headed that, those organizations are still behind bars uh, over oh, nearly two decades later. Um, so we have to be shocked to hear about the dr draconian, the politically motivated counterterrorism law that Israel has. And we have to be equally shocked by our own counterterrorism laws and, and the jurisprudence that has grown around them. Um, you know, in the US, it's exceedingly difficult to, to challenge designations as it is in Israel. Um, and, uh, you know, these de designations often rely on secret evidence. Um, courts give huge deference to government agencies that make these designations. So there have been very few designations that have been successfully challenged. And again, the implications are huge, not only the freezing of funds, but opening the door to surveillance, government surveillance and individual criminal liability. Um, so, you know, the, the, this notion that uh, Israel is unique in, in uh, using these kinds of, of, of strategies, these legal strategies, um, is, just, is just not true. And in fact, it has imported so much of its uh, counterterrorism strategies into the US and globally. Um, we've seen terrorism prosecutions here completely eviscerate due process protections. They've resulted in some of the most Kafkaesque trials. Um, you know, they've, they've relayed on, relied on the same kind of guilt by multiple degrees of association that Israel relies on. Um, and, and we see that the evidence in the, from, for these trials is actually provided by Israel. Israeli intelligence agents are allowed to testify anonymously in US courts. Um, so, so that defendants can't challenge the, their testimony. 
um, these are undermining fundamental constitutional due process protections, right? Um, courtrooms have been closed to the public. Uh, evidence is deemed classified so that defendants can't access it. Um, so, you know, in, in one case that I worked on when I was a law student here in Chicago, um, the case of Mohammed Salah, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it was almost an Israeli style military tribunal in a US court. Um, and that's because the Israeli government was in fact uh, constructing the entire case and providing all of the evidence for the case. And the, the US court, uh, it, you know, uh, responded to that and, um, and, and to the, the Israel's pleas to keep the information confidential, et cetera. So, you know, this, this shouldn't be a surprise. The US has proved to be a critical ally to Israel in this respect as well. And it's in the US's interest. It's bankrolled and is complicit in Israel's crimes. And so it's gone along with anything that appears to justify, um, justify them. And it's and the US's own war on terror. Um, it knows that allowing Israel to be accountable for the actions it's taken uh, to achieve Israel's own settler colonial project would mean that the US has to face accountability. For, for its own original sins of genocide and slavery. So I, this is all to say that the entire counter-terrorism regime in Israel here and, and just globally really undermines due process because it is reliant on uh, secret evidence. And it's, it's an ulti ultimately a political tool. These are political tools that Israel has helped to develop in the United States as well. That's clear from what Rabia and Jamil have, have said. Um, this is about these organizations work to expose Israel's crimes and hold it accountable. And in the same way that uh, people here have been targeted for uh, sending humanitarian aid, for uh, all kinds of advocacy, um, we're, we're seeing that those who are most effective in exposing and uh, trying to hold Israel accountable are the ones that are being targeted. So the, the, you know, all of the rule of law uh, principles in the world um, are, are, are being um, buried here and undermined and, and eviscerated um, as part of this strategy. Thanks, Dima. And I, I think a lot of people probably are unaware of the degree to which post 9-11 anti-terror laws were at least initially used first and foremost against Palestinians in the United States, not against anything to do with Al-Qaeda or, or the actual, you know, 9-11 activities. They were, they, were, um, they were turned into a weapon against Palestinian American organizations very quickly. Um, and that's a subject for a whole different webinar, but it's certainly related. Um, Rabia, I want to come back to you and, and sort of picking up on where Dean left off, which is not the most hopeful place in terms of the ability to challenge or litigate <laughs> the charges in some way. Um, you know, yesterday, there were two big articles that came out, one in Haaretz, one that was in 972 in The Intercept. And these two articles um, shined a light on what is at least some of the so-called evidence that the government of Israel is um, apparently now sharing in Washington. And, and we know this because they previously shared this evidence in Europe and the documents apparently are, are circulating. The headline of the article in 972 Intercept, I'll read it, it was secret Israeli document offers no proof to justify terror label for Palestinian groups. 
Um, can you talk to us about this question of evidence? You know, the ev what is this evidence as far as you understand it that Israel is relying on or has relied on? And, and, and the legal basis in the anti-terror law, um, which, which enables them to use evidence, which apparently the Europeans have now repeatedly found to be utterly uncompelling um, to categorize things like, according to the article, a Palestinian dance troupe or women's empowerment training as a form of terrorism or support for terrorism. Yes, thank you, Laura, for this question, because I think it, it is an opportunity to say something about what this designation is doing already. It is putting these organizations, ourselves included as lawyers or civil society people in a defense mode, right? Uh, it is already forcing, it's the power of this designation, regardless of evidence, is that now we have to start justifying that these organizations are proved that these organizations are not terrorist organizations. And this is part of the scheme. This is part of what this designation is intended to, to, to achieve. It's a discursive power that shifts the burden on these organizations now to go to international funder and states and etc. and try to say, wait, 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 there is no evidence, in fact. And that's really the situation. No evidence has been provided. We do not know anything about the evidence besides what has been published, both by media, but also in the designation itself. And, I, and it, is, it is a good opportunity to quote one of the designations. It's a very short paragraph that um, the designations themselves, which is the, the order that designates these um, um, organizations as terrorists, you know, it's issued by the Israeli Minister of Defense, um, Benny Gantz. And I'm quoting from the, the, the cause of designation uh, for Al-Haq, which is pretty similar to all other organizations. It's a one paragraph kind of um, reason, right? And here it goes. Uh, Al-Haq organization was established in 1979 and became an arm of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP, which has previously been designated as terrorist. Uh, second, the, the organization is based in Ramallah. The declared Al-Haq activity is in the field of human rights protection. However, in practice, it is engaged on behalf of the Popular Front in promotion of steps against Israel in the international arena, which constitutes part of the terror organization's struggle against Israel. Now, I think this is sufficient to understand that Israel has become so blind to its own um, uh, um, you know, use of the terrorism that it's basically saying what we consider is terrorism is promotion of steps against Israel in the international arena. You know, this can include, in fact, legitimate steps, legal steps to enforce international law. We know that Al-Haq is involved in the procedures in the ICC, for example, against um, the investigation against Israel in the ICC. So this is pretty much the, the framework or what we know from the designation about why they're considered um, um, according to the, to the declaration itself as terrorist organizations. We, neither the minister Gantz uh, um, nor any other public official in Israel itself came up officially and shared any shred of information about uh, the evidence that is at core. We just saw in the last week the Intercept um, um, article and that reveals this dossier um, but we, the, the, the allegations are still very much cryptic. 
uh, all allegations are based, even according to these uh, uh, revelations, basically, or the the, um, the intercept uh, article. You know, we are seeing that these are the the evidence, quote unquote, that uh, the designation is based on that was presented to to diplomats, to to uh, uh, foreign uh, funders, or to ministries across the world, is based on four testimonies. Uh, collected from workers of a different organization, which itself, the health work committees, which itself was designated as unlawful, which is a distinction from terrorist, according to the law. So this is part of, you know, the health committees is a seventh organization designated as unlawful organization in January already. And parts of the, its general director, uh, Shada Audi, is under, placed under administrative detention since and with no evidence. The idea of administrative detention is again, that there is no evidence, no concrete evidence that can be sufficient to instate uh, or to, to, to issue uh, a criminal process. And we know that every six months, these uh, uh, administrative detention can be renewed, etc. cetera. Um, so basically the idea is that according even to the intercept revelation, these quote unquote evidence, which is basically the testimonies of two particular workers that used to work pr prior to that in the health worker committees, which provide yeah, just, just to be clear, when you say testimonies, you mean confessions under Israel Security Service interrogation. Exactly, exactly. That's what I was heading towards saying that these even these testimonies or these confessions are part of an investigation that included torture, according to the to the lawyers of these people as well. And again, that it's it's again, I think that it's not productive to start going through the, the details of it. I think we should say that we know really nothing and that no evidence has been presented. Even this quote-unquote evidence that Israel has been going around and, and presenting to foreign governments, you know, including the Dutch and Spanish and uh, other uh, ministers, the Dutch and Belgium, sorry, um, uh, denied uh, that this evidence constitutes any meaningful evidence uh, that pertains to these organizations. So we are just seeing that basically declaring these organizations based on testimonies that are, or based on confessions that are extracted uh, by the way of torture, a practice that has been ostensibly unlawful under Israeli law, but since 1998, when the Supreme Court said, there's a Supreme Court said that torture is supposedly unlawful, we know that the practice of torture is very much evident in uh, security investigations. Um, and this has been really came to, to a climax, I think, with the Tbish case, for those of you lawyers who, who are following the, the corpus of Israeli law, which pretty much says, the Supreme Court said, in a case where there were concrete evidence of torture, uh, the Supreme Court dismissed the case and said, opened a wide door for continuing with the practice of torture. Now, this practice of torture is also coupled, comes on top of denying any uh, um, lawyer um, meeting with a lawyer or consultation during the investigation. So this is the evidence we're relying on, quote unquote. And I'm satirizing it because we have to satirize it. Because we 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 should be aware that we should not be in a in a we should not fall into into this role of defensive mode to start assuming that there is evidence when no evidence has actually been presented. 
Yeah, no, that's a really powerful point. I think going back to the satirizing, one of the things that is um, striking in reading these articles, it, it refers, uh, it re it's related to what you, you read to us about the Al-Haq indictment, which is the definition of terrorist activities, um, at least by Israel's definition, has now been expanded so broadly that it includes things that are clearly not terrorism by any other definition. At this point, it, it almost seems like everything is terrorism. And according at least to the, the article in The Intercept, the, the confessions that they're relying on are actually being not fully, there, there's what the confession about the dub case where they actually cut it off. They cut off the person in mid-sentence. So they basically have someone confessing that these organizations are supporting PFLP activities, but then the journalist got the full transcript of the confession, and then it talks about what those activities are, and they include dance recitals. I mean, it's it's really um, it's quite striking. It, it satirizes itself in a sense if you if you look at the details. Yeah, um, I just want to add, Lara, before that, that we have seen cases, in fact, that civil civilian activity has been criminalized under the pretext of anti-terrorism, in particular with Gaza. So there were cases that went again to the Israeli Supreme Court where um, there was no dispute that the activity, it was even commerce. You know, Palestinian activity, daily life can be criminalized under the pretext of this legislation, under the pretext of this 2016 law that expands the definition of terrorism to include daily activities that are, even according to the Israeli Supreme Court, are legitimate, but can still be considered um, um, terrorist. For example, and, and with this, I'll wrap up on this idea to just understand how even civilian activities in nature and say that, that there is no claim that it constitutes any terror. Um, um, so for example, we know that providing um, charity or providing um, any arms of charity slash um, you know, civil service to the to the community can still be counted as uh, terrorist or, or, or charged for terrorist provisions uh, if it is somehow related to these organizations that are declared terrorists. So this is in in U.S. terms, it's quote unquote material support, right? That we know that is like an overbroad interpretation of this meaning. Thank you, and Dima, I want to turn to you and, and relating to this last question of. Um, of what is terrorism and evidence, because they're related to what you were talking about before. It, there seems to almost be a, 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 a really, um, it, it, almost like tautology here. It's like, you know, they're terrorist organizations because we say their activities are terrorist, and now that we've declared them terrorist, all their activities and support for these activities is by de definition support for terrorism. It's, um, again, the sort of recursive thing. Can you, can you talk about how that figures in with the U.S. side of things? I'm thinking about some of the lawfare cases where, for instance, the Carter Center was charged with material support in a slap suit for providing, and in the lawsuit, I remember you and I both saw it, the, the word, they circled on a picture, they provided fruit, water, and cookies at a public event, and that was a charge of material support for terror. Um, and can you also talk from a U.S. legal standpoint about this whole idea of cases that rely almost entirely on confessions from people who are facing charges themselves, um, sort of unsubstantiated confessions as being the core of, of the, uh, the indictments. Yeah, I, it, I mean, what Rabia was, was starting to say about US law is, um, is really what's at, at, at issue here. And under, under US laws, our, our provisions for material support for terrorism 
basically allow uh, um, the criminalization of uh, speech, of advocacy. Um, so in a, a Supreme Court decision, um, humanitarian law project uh, decision uh, several years ago, we, we saw that uh, you know, providing human rights training to a designated organization becomes, uh, it can be material support for terrorism. And so, you know, this is something that, uh, that Israel has trying to be push, push the boundaries on in order to encompass, um, you know, even speech, even advocacy uh, uh, for Palestinian rights. Uh, if you if you can make whatever uh, tenuous associations with a, a designated organization, that's all you really need in order to make these these uh, claims. Um, so it's it's a very dangerous uh, and uh, it's a dangerous regime that we have here, and it's something that Israel has has been exploiting and is clearly trying to exploit in this instance. And when we're talking about evidence, I think, um, you know, there's, uh, we've seen efforts to uh, use material support uh, claims in, in civil cases, right? So uh, uh, an organization, an advocacy organization like the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights was sued um, based on you know, six degrees of separation with Hamas, right? So you can make that link in any which way. And it sounds absurd. Um, and yet US law uh, allows for, for, for this kind of guilt by association. And, you know, the case has been dismissed. It's being appealed, of course. But, um, it, you know, in, in the end, <laughs> the point is not necessarily what evidence do you have. It's can you uh, make this organization radioactive? Can you uh, suck their resources dry? Can you intimidate other people uh, from, from engaging on this issue? Um, uh, and, and that's what we really have to combat here. We have to combat the chilling effect that these kinds of accusations are creating um, all over the place. And the, the intention is to isolate, the intention is to um, uh, distract us from the real issues, um, distract us from trying to get accountability for, for Israel's own crimes. Um, in terms of just tortured evidence, I just to make the, the point, um, again, you know, uh, the extent to which Israel's, uh, um, Israel's efforts have been adopted and uh, and really used in in U.S. courts is is terrifying in in many ways. Um, you, there are provisions under U.S. law that to be admissible in court, a confession has to be voluntary. So technically, a tortured confession, like we're talking about um, in this, you know, the the dossier of evidence that Israel has created, should be inadmissible. Um, and yet, we've seen. In, in several cases, uh, tortured confessions from uh, provided by Israel admitted in US courts. Um, again, based on secret evidence, based on testimony of disguised Israeli agents in US courts. Um, Resmi Audi's case uh, was also hinged on a tortured confession, right? Uh, when, when she was 
charged for an immigration offense. Um, so, you know, the fact is when it comes to these terrorism issues, the evidence doesn't matter anymore. And, and these cases are all about guilt by association. They're political and whatever it takes to secure convictions to, um, you know, make examples out of people uh, is, is allowed in, in courts despite all of our due process protections. Um, so I think that, that what we have to uh, combat here and in the Palestinian Palestine context is uh, any, any uh, credit to Israeli designations, to what the Israeli government says about, um, about our, our civil society groups that are engaged in, in um, you know, advocacy, speech, um, human rights work. Um, and and there, that is where we have to focus um, on, on continuing, on protecting our own, uh, our own uh, people who are engaged in this work and, um, and, and also tackling this broader problem of, of the, the counterterrorism regime of, you know, the war on terror regime, because that's, that's what has allowed this kind of targeting of, of civil society to, to persist. Thanks. And it, listening to your answer, I'm thinking about what Rabia said in this idea of you know, guilty until proven innocent, you must prove yourself innocent. And it's come up a couple times in Q&A, the idea that there's something here that feels very reminiscent of sort of the Red Scare and McCarthyism. I, I, was, I was joking with someone that it's sort of like they, they want every Palestinian to stand up and swear, you know, are you now or have, or have you ever been a supporter of, you know, as, as if that is like the starting point to being considered kosher to have any political views or being engaged politically in nonviolent activism of any kind, um, which is really pretty appalling. Um, Jamil, turning to you, um, can you, you're here, this is something I know you, you think about a lot. Can you talk about the response of the Biden administration that you've seen so far to this decision and, and how you think they're going to act? They've asked ostensibly for clarifications. And again, we don't know for sure what they're looking at, if it's exactly the same as what the Europeans got and rejected, or if it's something more. But what are, what are you thinking they, they can do or will do? And, and let's also just stipulate that the U.S. doesn't fund any of these organizations. So this isn't a matter of the U.S. defunding them, but what the U.S. does, whether it is designating or standing quiet and letting them be designated, has a huge impact on what the rest of the world can do, let alone will do. So can you just sort of weigh in on that? And can you, I'm sorry, more, this is stuff you've written about. Can you talk about this whole idea of the Biden administration coming in and restoring, um, you know, sanity and the rules-based international world order and you know, respect for human rights and rule of law? How, how does this challenge that? I mean, because to me, this seems like a pretty direct challenge. Yes, it is a pretty, uh, I think, most, most serious challenge, I think, to, to their claim that the Biden administration is going to uh, center human rights, rule of law, democracy, and support for civil society around the world, and the uh, rules-based uh, order that they are uh, proclaiming to champion. This is this is going to be this is the most serious, I think, challenge um, that that we will see how they will act. I just want to say one one thing, and just to comment on what this what Dima said. Uh, just I think I think she would agree with me, but I think you want to make it very clear. That we're not, 
I don't think that anyone would argue that um, that we would uh, or we should be conceding that uh, you know uh, in uh, free speech should be re- uh, speech should be restricted um, you know under uh, the HLP decision and that is obviously a goes into more the material support clause although the attempts at SEMA said by uh, many organizations very conservative uh, organizations uh, that support uh, Israeli uh, efforts have been to to try to interpret uh, the anti-terrorism uh, laws, including material support laws in the United States in a way that would um, subject organizations, uh, legitimate activism, uh, First Amendment protected activism, as well as speech to these restrictions and to criminalization. Uh, so I think that we, although the HLP case, you know, left a really gray area that uh, is not helpful, we, we think was, was um, uh, because of the way that scholars, uh, uh, civil liberties organizations, and some politicians, you know, members of Congress reacted to the decision, it hasn't been used in the way that it could be used potentially. Uh, for example, in the context of uh, 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 prosecuting or criminalizing individuals who would provide training um, or coordinate with the designated entities. Uh, and, and so I think that uh, there's always a, a, a risk. And I think that's what they are, uh, th- those uh, organizations and interest groups are trying to pressure the government. And we saw under the Trump administration, they actually uh, succeeded in many ways to, to make that uh, by two things that they did. Particularly, I want to focus on the one related to the sanctions against the International Criminal Court because the chief prosecutor and her deputy were designated uh, by the US uh, State Department and the, and the Treasury Department as designated, organiz- designated entities that would then be subject to sanctions by the US government. Uh, that, so that's happened. And that's happened to an international organization uh, that is a multilateral uh, organization that has a legitimacy worldwide by the closest US allies, particularly in Europe, but because of Israeli pressure, but and of course uh, pressure from certain conservative groups that did not want to see the U.S. held accountable for the ICC, but it was really the Israeli pressure that made that sort of designation come to place. And and I think that the Biden administration should be commended, even though it took them months to rescind the executive order, uh, it, they should be commended by taking the right uh, decision in terms of. Uh, dropping the sanctions against the chief prosecutor and um, and pledging, as, as you said, to, to center human rights and, and, and engagement with uh, international organizations, including constructive engagement with the ICC. And I hear, I think, it's why this is going to be a challenge for the Biden administration, because what they are offered now is kind of a, a deja vu of what we saw after 9-11. Uh, particularly against the Muslim American organizations that were in a very short time, about six organizations were uh, designated by the uh, Treasury Department uh, and by unilateral and secret evidence-based process by the Bush administration. They, they could not uh, uh, defend themselves. There was serious violations of due process under the U.S. law. And as Dima said, some people were even personally prosecuted. Um, and there were even a larger effort to 
designate certain people as unindicted co-conspirators. So it went beyond the, the individuals who were involved in the Holy Land Foundation or a particular foundation. And it had an impact, a chilling effect, huge chilling effect on Muslim, Muslim Americans and others who were engaged in humanitarian and charity efforts, uh, particularly in the context of foreign, foreign um, efforts, like in support of uh, Palestinian humanitarian uh, causes in the West Bank and Gaza, but also in other places. So here's a, in that case, you, you saw the, the Israeli government uh, providing the dossier and being able to even, as Dimas mentioned, uh, Israeli secret service agents given the legitimacy to appear uh, in US courts without being able to, uh, the, the defendants being able to defend themselves against such evidence properly. Uh, and, and yet those cases went on and uh, we know that uh, the assets have continued to be uh, frozen. Uh, there were some successes. There was, we, there's a case that the Kindheart uh, case that we settled, but ultimately the chilling effect was enormous. And similarly here, we're having in a different level, obviously, because the level of uh, the Israeli government bringing the designation, its own designations of very prominent civil society organizations, including one of the oldest human rights organizations in the Middle East, Al-Harq, uh, and designating them and trying to have the same ripple effect on their, uh, not only on their funding, but on all of anyone who would be associated with them, supporting them and standing in solidarity with them. Um, and so I think that the Biden administration have to, to be careful whether they would be First of all, how do they deal with this evidence that is secret evidence? As Rabia mentioned, this secret evidence is, is a kind of a standard procedure in Israeli courts, not only in military courts, but in civilian courts, including before the Israeli Supreme Court, where uh, constantly there's a pressure to see secret evidence in camera without the presence of the, uh, the petitioners or the individuals involved and their, or their lawyers. And that is a practice that's been going on for years. So that is not the issue here is whether these, this dossier, which we know that is baseless, at least the one that was presented to the Europeans. And if it's not the same dossier that's presented, it has no basis, no evidence. And, and it's only relying on at best hearsay, uh, 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 smears and uh, false accusations uh, that, uh, that they're trying to build uh, a, a case from nothing. And so they have to be careful about the evidence and the way they do it. More importantly, they have to be um, careful about the consequences of whether if they not only don't agree with the Israeli government, they will have to take a, a position demanding that this would be revoked, demanding that the Israeli, go Israeli government designation is rescinded because if they don't take a position, an active position that would demanding such action, it will be seen as green lighting this or effectively uh, co uh, coalescing with this kind of uh, decision and uh, giving all the lawfare organizations to the free hand to continue their effort before administrative bodies, before the agencies, before the courts. And, and that's exactly what the purpose of this whole thing. So they have to come very clear, uh, rejecting this attack as, as a, a baseless attack, as illegitimate, as targeting civil society that the, Israel, that the US government proclaimed to protect all over the world. Look, 
the Israeli, uh, the U.S. Uh, government is inviting Israel to participate in a summit for democracy next month, uh, the 9th and 10th of December. There will be uh, 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 over 100 countries uh, invited. Israel and Iraq are the only democracies invited to the White House for this uh, Biden summit for democracy. And so they, 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 there's a question while they will be able to uh, justify uh, having uh, to invite Israel as a, one of the two democracies in the Middle East uh, to come to the White House when that same, same country is criminalizing and outlawing uh, civil society organizations, human rights organizations, and banning effectively banning them from doing their work and added to the other serious violations of human rights and international humanitarian law that we discussed earlier the apartheid policies, the settler colonial system that's being entrenched, the, the, the blockade on Gaza, the, all these other violations have been, uh, that's now being, most many of them are being investigated by the ICC. So I think that the, the, the Biden administration would do, uh, would, would do themselves a, a good service if they would reject that attempt, just as they did uh, a few days ago with designating NSO, uh, the spyware, um, tech company, the Israeli spyware com companies, as uh, one of the listed listed uh, groups or, uh, or, or that will be um, banned uh, from any communication and would be having some consequences as far as U.S. Go US government is concerned because of their role in repressing democratic values, democratic freedoms. That should be the the direction that rejecting what the uh, the Israeli government is doing not just in the context of the, um, uh, of the designation, that's the first thing, but rejecting the, the, the measures that are taken against civil society actors more broadly. I mean, there are bans against travel. People can't enter Israel if they are uh, uh, somehow, there's some fi finding some evidence that they launched boycott campaigns. Uh, UN special rapporteurs and experts are banned from entering the country to investigate credible you know, uh, violations of human rights. Um, they, they banned and deported Human Rights Watch director of Israel-Palestine, Omar Shafir, uh, a couple of years ago. So there's all these things that that U.S. and the Biden administration will, can't just be sitting and watching while um, and while claiming at the same time that they are urging other governments, including governments like China and Russia, to, uh, to play by the international rules. So the international rules mean uh, the things that the organization have been designated as terrorism, terrorist organizations have documented that are illegal, the settlements uh, as war crimes, the, the, what is happening in Sheikh Jarrah and in, in East Jerusalem, the, the uh, forced displacement of communities, the blockade on Gaza, and the, uh, the, the lack of accountability for, for, for basic um, violations of international humanitarian law. So all of these together, I think would really make make it very difficult for the Biden administration not to uh, not to do something along the lines of rejecting that designation and taking the active position, active actions and steps in order to show their support to the work of these organizations that are regularly cited by State Department reports. Yes. Thank you. And I'm, I'm so sorry to cut in. We are running out of time. I think we have time for two quick answers. Um, I want to come to Dima first. Um, Dima, I wanted you to talk a little bit about sort of first order, second order, third order consequences, right? And Jamila's mentioned with the ICC and sanctions. Can, can you talk about 
you know, what the consequences are. You know, there's people probably in those calls who are not super focused on Israel-Palestine. This isn't the center of the universe. Why should they still care about this? And Rabia, we're coming to you next to get ready, if we could be pretty quick. Yeah, um, I, this is this is a critical question, right? Uh, my my organization, Palestine Legal, you know, we we respond to hundreds of requests for legal help every year, and a, a significant portion of them are, uh, you know, these kinds of baseless smears, uh, terrorism smears, as well as the kind of twin pillar of the terrorism smear, which is the anti-Semitism smear. Right, and and these are uh, um, both intended uh, to uh, to to shut down the conversation, to distract us from the real issue, um, which is uh, what what Israel is and does. And so, you know, we see this in in many different forms. We uh, there is, and and it's a progression from you know harassment and public smearing to lawfare, um, the the kind of lawfare we've we've been talking about. Um, you know, we see online uh, harassment and doxing and these uh, sites like uh, doxing sites like Canary Mission, which are making these uh, baseless allegations that people are, you know, support terrorism or are pro-terrorist. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's, I think what, uh, what kind of exposes this, this terrorism smear is are, are the absurd examples, you know, calling Ben and Jerry's decision not to sell ice cream in, in occupied territory terrorism. Uh, a children's book, uh, you know, is, is terrorism. A student organizing conference is terrorism. These are common, uh, um, common kinds of labels that are being placed on everyday activities that, uh, that, that people are engaged in, wearing a kafiyah or a free Palestine t-shirt is labeled as terrorism. Um, so in the same way that, that people are constantly uh, attacked for um, anything and everything they say in support of Palestinian rights, um, you know, this is, this is a, a cascading, uh, it has a cascading effect. Um, and, you know, we, we have clients who have uh, been visited by the FBI after they talked about their visit to Palestine on a delegation. Um, we have clients who, you know, who's, who, who Canary Mission was targeting and called the FBI and the FBI visits them at their law school, right? Um, so, so, you know, and then we have deplatforming cases that I think you mentioned, Lara, um, you know, uh, Zionist groups attacking uh, uh, fundraising sites, you know, claiming if you let this, this group fundraise on your site, you may be liable for uh, material support for terrorism. And so these uh, companies are risk averse. And, um, and so we see these cascading effects um, but starting from smears all the way to um, lawfare attacks, civil, civil lawsuits like the one I mentioned against the US campaign. And so we have this perverse situation where US courts are uh, allowing Israelis to sue Palestinians or Palestinian organizations or entities like humanitarian organizations because of these attenuated ties, you know, alleged ties with debt organizations that are designated by the US government. Um, and, you know, this is while Israel faces zero accountability 
for its decades of oppression, its constant violations, right? So it's 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 a very perverse situation we're in. And um, you know, the, the fact is that you know, we have to also understand that this this as I've been saying, I think we have to look at this terrorism regime as a whole and, and the terrorism label, right? It is a, a tool to uh, target dissent. And, and we see that more and more. Um, it has, as I've said, it undermines so many of the constitutional protections we have. But, you know, then we see it bleeding to, it's not just about Palestine, actually, right? We see Zionist efforts to call Black Lives Matter terrorist because they take a stand for Palestine um, and, and also support the movement for Black Lives. We see terrorism being used to justify surveillance at Standing Rock. We see terrorism prosecutions against animal rights and, and environmental rights activists. So these punishments for uh, uh, dissent on a number of social justice issues um, is being labeled as terrorism. And these are all signs that this regime is really aimed at political dissent, just like in Israel. It's a tool to shut down political resistance. Um, so, you know, it's our job um, not only to uh, thaw this chill that is being created and to protect people from the isolation that, that this is intended to create and to defend folks and you know, make sure that they have the courage to keep working towards uh, freedom and justice. Uh, we also have to challenge these tactics legally, um, politically, in every way that we have at our disposal. Um, we have to rally to defend not just these six groups for whom they're, you know, this amazing and critical international outcry has, has been generated and it has to keep going. Um, but we also have to defend the, the groups that are targeted here. Um, so, you know, I think this is a critical moment to, um, to, to start to interrogate what what is this, what does terrorism mean and who gets to define it, right? And, and what does, uh, what, what is it intending to achieve here? It is intending to undermine our movements for, for a transformational change in our, in, in our foreign policy and our domestic policy. And, um, and it, it's really a, a, a tool to uh, crush, crush movements, crush resistance here in Israel and globally. Thanks. And Rabia, you're going to get the last word. And what I'm hoping you can talk about is this idea of challenging. And, and part of it is, you know, what options do Palestinians have to challenge these kind of um, allegations or these designations? And, you know, you, you are part of a legal organization in, in Israel. I mean, what are the, what are the chances? Can, can Palestinians actually get any kind of justice within an Israeli court system, which appears largely to have been designed to elevate the, the interests of the Israeli state and a portion of its citizenry over the rights of Palestinians. Yeah, so there is an appeal. Pro I'll be very quick and very try to capture the legal framework and the opportunities and wrap up with this. But 
So according to the legal framework of that 2016 anti-terror law, there is this designation, which is considered for the first 60 days, I believe, a temporary designation, which becomes automatic, uh, automatically after these 60 days, it becomes permanent. But there is a sort of appeal process, which uh, uh, the committees can resort to. But the problem is it's, it's essentially a flawed system and flawed appeal process because there is a committee that comprises of different you know, officials, uh, a former Supreme Court judge, et cetera, et cetera. But then these, the, the process in front of this committee, appeals committee, first, lacks any substantive um, access to evidence. So even the lawyers and the committees don't have access to the evidence, to the, all of the evidence. Some of it is secret evidence that can't be accessed. Um, and it is up to the committee to decide whether they will give a hearing, schedule a hearing, or hold everything uh, through writing. Uh, so there is no right to hearing. You can submit your appeal. But even then, the rec let's say we submitted the appeal and the, the committee recommended that, uh, uh, that the designation would be rescinded or whatever. Um, then the, the, the ultimate decision, and the, here is the main flaw, goes back to the Minister of Defense. So he has the ultimate discretion to, to ultimately decide whether to accept the recommendation of the appeal process or not. And we already know the intention of the, 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 the minister. Now, having said that, I think there is still room for hope and action. We know that the Israeli legal system is not a just system for Palestinians, but we know that it is also responsive for international pressure. And we know that there is room to act and pressure uh, this system. Very similarly, by the way, to the, to the, to the pressure we saw with the Sheikh Jarrah case, the Israeli Supreme Court eventually, which this can lead, even when the, the minister decides not, let's say not to accept the recommendation, let's say that the committee, the, 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 the appeal recommendation ends with a co the, the committee concluding that this should be um, um, canceled, that the declaration should be canceled. And this is the best case, right? The best case is that the, the appeal committee after the, the, the process recommends to cancel the designation. And let's say the minister declines this recommendation. There is still a possibility to petition the Supreme Court against this um, decision of the minister. But we need international pressure also in this case, because we know that the Israeli Supreme Court and the Israeli uh, legal apparatus is also responsive to international pressure. And, uh, and so I think that the role of US people, of, of, um, of people abroad is to continue and pressure their administrations, their governments to demand uh, accountability and to demand um, um, evidence to begin with, right? Like we, we cannot go on again with this process. And this is not a short-term battle. This is perhaps a medium-term, perhaps a long-term. This can take months. It's not, it will probably not end tomorrow and we need to keep this going. Thank you. And we're letting, the, I made the executive decision to let this run 10 minutes over or five minutes over. Jamil, I know you have one last thing you want to add. Yeah, just a couple of thoughts about the the way forward as far as challenging the decision. Uh, I think we have to be uh, remember a couple of things. One is uh, it could be used, you know, challenging the, such a decision um, before Israeli bodies, whether it's the committee or the ultimately the Supreme Court, could be used by 
certain government, foreign government, particularly in the United States, to say, well, let the process play itself. Let them, uh, they will have due process because there's a perception that Israel is, does have an independent judiciary that does have, uh, does provide due process and does protect uh, people's rights and organization, even from the West Bank, even under occupation, there's all these laws, all these decisions. So I think they'd be very careful not to fall into this trap. That is, there has to be a very principled position against the designation, it has to be a clear uh, uh, statement, as well as subsequent steps to make sure that the, these organizations are not being uh, uh, left to dry, and as well as others and the consequences. And that's something that needs to be taken on. The second thing is about the, the way that uh, uh, the unity uh, between the six organizations. It's important that these cases would not be divided because it could be poss a possible outcome of, of such a process, whether before the committee or ultimately before the Supreme Court, which is very much what happens in those, in those processes, is a way of balancing the damage, the public uh, international damage to, the, to, the, to, to Israel and, and, and to what they need to do in order to give the Gans, who by the way, could be a primary suspect in the, or target of the investigation for the ICC, they, they, what they want. And that I think they could, could be a possibility or potential scenario where they could uh, approve certain designation for part of the six organizations and uh, deny or uh, disapprove the others. And which would look like, oh, look, there is some due process. There is some uh, legitimate process that, and, and that outcome is fair. And this should be accepted and we should go move forward and go back to business as usual. That should not let that happen. And that, that's why I think, and my, uh, my proposal uh, and suggestion to my colleagues at Adala was, and to the Palestinian organizations, they need to, while this process is individual organization had to challenge its individual order, but there should be a strategy not to divide the six in any way and to continue to ensure that the international pressure is, is not waning down, is not going to uh, uh, weaken because once you go into that, you lose the, the solidarity, you lose that. So that is what's important to happen now to focus on making sure those governments reject the Israeli designation, reject the secret evidence, reject the baseless claims and come forward with proactive steps and measures that show and prove that they are on the side of uh, the human rights organizations uh, that being designated as terrorism, terrorists. Thank you. Thank you. And we didn't get into it, but relevant to that, um, I would encourage people to look at our website and listen to the podcast I did with Daoud Kitab, looking at the Mohammed Halabi case, which is a case of the employee of World Vision. The international community has been extremely deferential to Israel's due process. He has now been held on secret evidence in a secret process for five years. Um, to the extent where it seems pretty clear now that he's clearly innocent and they just don't want to let him go unless they can get some kind of plea bargain, which will let them save face. Um, it's pretty horrific. And uh, that sort of due process is guaranteed essentially to destroy these organizations while due process would take its course. Of course, justice delayed is justice denied here. Um, we're going to end here. Thank you so much, Jamil. Um, thank you so much, Rabia, for jumping in. And Dima, as always, thank you for joining us. And thanks to everyone who joined or listened to this event. Glad to share the conversation with you and thank you for people who gave us their questions. We worked them in as best we could. Um, check our website, www.fmep.org for an entire um, compendium of resources. The conversation we had today, continually growing with new webinars and podcasts. Um, and thank you all until the next time. Goodbye. Thank you.